y'all. Welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the context in which we are living today. Through Christian scripture and our various traditions, what guidance can we find and imagination can we practice as white folks about our role in resistance in showing up in practices of repentance and liberation? My name is M, Reverend M. Jade Kaiser, formerly M. Barclay, but recently returning to my given last name. My pronouns are they, them, and I am one of three co-directors and a co-founder of a collective called Enfleshed. We create and facilitate spiritual nourishment for the long, slow labors of collective liberation. I am Southern grown, but currently residing in the Midwest, in the place currently known as Iowa City, Iowa, but first home to the Iowa, Oto, Omaha, Pawnee, Sioux, Sauk, and Meskwaki peoples. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians. White Christians talking to other white Christians about race and white supremacy, about being a part of returning and tending all relations. We believe white Christians have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, especially through the Christian tradition. Any of us white folks who have grown up with a relationship to Christianity, whether conservative, liberal, evangelical, or progressive, have inherited Christian-specific facets of white supremacy that we have the power and responsibility to unlearn and imagine anew, including our conception of the divine. We do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's Song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. For grounding in this episode, I invite you to settle in. Take a good long breath and receive this poem from Clint Smith. Some evenings, after days when the world feels like it has poured all of its despair into me, when I am awash with burdens that rests atop my body like a burlap of jostling shadows, I find a place to watch the sunset. I dig my feet into a soil that has rebirthed itself a million times over. I listen to the sound of leaves as they decide whether or not it is time to descend from their branches. It is hard to describe the comfort one feels in sitting with something you trust will always be there, something you can count on to remain familiar when all else seems awry. How remarkable it is to know that so many have watched the same sun set before you, how the wind can carry pollen and drop it somewhere it has never been, how the leaves have always become the soil that then they become the leaves again, how maybe we are not so different from the leaves, how maybe we are also always being reborn to something more than we once were, how maybe that's what waking up each morning is, 
a reminder that we are born of the same atoms as every plant and bird and mountains and ocean around us. So, so good. Thank you, Clint Smith. Now I am going to read our text for this week. It's Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and as always, tweaked to disrupt the compulsory, compulsory masculinization of God. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took, took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, God will command God's angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship God and serve only them. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. All right, y'all, I am so excited to be diving into this text with you on this first Sunday of Lent. Uh, as you may or may not know, uh, we are focusing on disrupting anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism throughout the season of Lent uh, within the text uh, and our engagement with the text within Christian theology and its application to the world today. Uh, so um, as we begin together, I would like to frame this uh, text and this episode, and perhaps for some of you, if you'd like to frame the Lenten season um, around this lens uh, with these words from Dr. Judith Plaskow, uh, who's a feminist Jewish scholar. Um, this is from her essay called uh, Feminist Anti-Judaism and the Christian God. She asks, quote, must Jesus be different from every other human being who ever lived in order for Christianity to make sense? Can Christians value Jesus if he was just a Jew who chose to emphasize certain ideas and values in the Jewish tradition, but did not invent or have a monopoly on them? End quote. Uh, Dr. Plaskow, you know, asked this question in a larger journal article um, around the ways that even though those of us who align with feminism or other resistance lineages can still cling to these insidious 
uh, theologies that demand a kind of opposition with Judaism um, and that she, she rightly asks, is that necessary? Is that necessary? Is that inherent hierarchy of claiming Jesus as unique, um, which then immediately makes him unique within uh, his own Jewish tradition, uh, which that uniqueness is built on a lot of ignorant assumptions on our part that then we are taught and inherent, inherit. Um, and so I, I just find this question, these questions to be great ones to bring specifically through the season of Lent uh, as we journey with Jesus uh, up to state execution and um, uh, onto the other side into the season of Easter. And so um, I know that this hits on a, to what many people has been a central doctrine of Christianity, um, to many people the central doctrine, doctrine of Christianity. Uh, for me, it once was and very much no longer is. Um, and I, I do believe that there are very valuable and satisfying and authentic expressions of Christianity that do not indeed require Jesus um, to be pitted against his own tradition um, or even removed from it by becoming um, the one and only of, of anything, frankly. Um, I don't believe that he thought he was, um, and neither did his followers. Um, immediately after uh, his life. Um, so uh, that may be quite a departure from what some of you are used to imagining, and certainly it, it is a departure from many of my years of faith. Um, but I, I hope that you'll at least explore with me uh, what it might look like to realign Jesus with um, his colleagues and beloveds of his time, uh, and how that also um, enables us to align with Jesus today in a different kind of relationship, uh, one where he is less um, over and above any of us and um, more alongside us, reminding us of our own um, uh, capacities to enflesh God on earth. So... With that said, um, I do want to start with uh, this text and verse 3, um, just noting just noting that the very first thing that the tempter does when Jesus is in the wilderness is uh, question um, what I don't I don't think it's so much that the tempter is questioning if, Jesus uh, is worthy of the title of Son of God, so much as the tempter is asking if this is uh, the sort of tradition with which you're going to align, then here's some questions for you. Uh, and part of what what makes me feel that way is putting putting this language, the Son of God, back in the context of both the Jewish tradition and the Roman political context. Um, those of us who are raised raised Christian 
are often taught to hear the Son of God language as if it is uniquely used for Jesus, um, which is interesting in that we are so, we can be so comfortable with being called children of God, um, but Son of God is, is treated as this wildly separate category. Um, and, and that shapes so much of how we enter this text. Um, and so first, I just want to mention that in Jesus's Jewish tradition, the language of the Son of God has a lot more elasticity than we're used to in modern Christian approaches to the language. Uh, it could be used in a much broader context of like King David, for instance, uh, Solomon, um, and a lot of a lot of other circumstances, not just kings, but a lot of people or moments, even the whole of Israel is referred to in that way at, at various points. But the, the, it, it, it is more a way of connoting um, the moments or people or positions that uh, sort of help in, influence or orchestrate the larger will of God for the people of Israel specifically. Um, and so uh, that is the tradition in which Jesus is um, being engaged with this title, right? It is uh, already when we assume that that is a title that only Jesus uh, engages, then we are already erasing uh, his very tradition. Um, and so that's part of the context for this text. Uh, and then also, I just want to note, some of you are probably familiar with this, but um, Jesus was born under the rule of Augustus, who was the first empire, first ruler of the Roman Empire, uh, and, and considered a wild success from the Roman Empire perspective. Um, and he was also the son of Julius Caesar. And when Julius Caesar died, he was deemed a god. Um, and so Augustus was known as the son of God. Uh, and this is reflective of a larger uh, world view that understood uh, divinity and politics and um, uh, just sort of the structure of the universe, if you will, uh, in a very different way than we conceptualize now. And so some of those titles, you know, they land differently than as they do now, than they do now. Um, but what, what we can perhaps imagine is the ways that, um, one, obviously deities and power go together to reinforce each other. Um, and when Augustus is able to claim his title as son of God, not only does that have a kind of, uh, you know, um, strength, if you will, especially given the context of how divinity was understood at the time to it, um, but it also allowed for a real mythology of what the Roman Empire was doing for the world and for the people um, under its power. And of course, part of its propaganda was, you know, creating this image of it, the empire being a trustworthy uh, institution that 
if you were loyal to it, would provide for you. And so you'd be safe, you'd be secure, you'd have food, you'd have well-being. Um, its might would be your protection, you know, it's the son of God, the Augustus following in the footsteps of, of Julius Caesar uh, represent this worldview of just, a, just like life and the empire can be good, right? Uh, not so different than the kind of propaganda we are used to in the United States that says if you are just loyal to the set of systems, laws, cultures, and norms, you will have everything provided to you, which then blames uh, uh, individuals uh, who do not indeed have access to fair wages or health care or safety or security, uh, who are uh, arrested and kept in prison and attacked and, you know, every, all of, all of the failures that we recognize of living under empire, the empire then says are the fault of the individuals who don't play by the rules of the empire, right? So super familiar. Um, and, uh, that's, yeah, so that's a part of the context under which Jesus then is called the Son of God. Uh, it is not a un an entirely unique identifier, and it is both, um, well, one way, first of all, this is a good time to note that at the end of chapter 3, right before this, we're in chapter 4, uh, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and uh, in that story, we hear God referring to him as the Son of God in whom he is well pleased, right? Um, in whom God is well pleased, right? So what I see in this is um, the way that the story is starting to reveal two different sort of symbols of worldview. Um, and power, right? So we have one symbol, we have the Roman Empire that has its own son of God that symbolizes the ideology of dominance and power and all of the propaganda that says that's the way you're gonna find the life you want <laughs> uh, for your family, for your people, is just get on board with that God, so to speak. And then you have Jesus, who is a part of a different system, who in these stories uh, can symbolize the, uh, the, the one who is voicing the will of the God of the people of Israel, who, are, who is saying, here's a different set of values and practices and ethics and norms and cultures, uh, cultural norms that if you follow will lead to the liberation you want, right? So we have these two very different gods and they're uh, the people through whom they are communicating their will and desire and promises, etc. Uh, and Jesus is one of the people in his tradition who are trying to articulate and practice and build power around their gods 
approach, worldview, if you will. That flattens a little more than I wish, but hopefully that makes sense. So <laughs> here we are in the wilderness, which of course already brings up, you know, images of Jesus's ancestors who, why were they in the wilderness? They were in the wilderness because they left uh, Egypt and they were seeking liberation, seeking a land where they could live differently out from under a power over them. They were seeking uh, the the space and the freedom and the agency to live according to their God, their ethics, their norms, etc. Uh, and so we can imagine how this moment where Jesus is in the wilderness, which he was led to by the Spirit, um, symbolizes the ongoing desire for uh, the ancient Jewish people to find, create, encounter, etc., freedom. And in this sort of safe place, and by safe, I don't mean the, the wilderness is safe, but I mean um, Jesus is not yet influencing uh, the public in such a way that might put his people at risk. Um, it's almost like he's got a little Again, playground is too uh, too generous. It makes it sound too easy. Um, but he is getting some practice, if you will, uh, to see what happens when his internal edges are hit, um, his spiritual edges. He comes to his spiritual edges. Uh, and certainly when our physical uh, needs are being challenged, we that coincides with our spiritual temptations, right? We're going to not have as much to draw on. And so I see him in this like moment of, you know, seeking to explore what he's ready for, what happens when he's challenged, what really is motivating him at the core, you know, trying to carefully uh, spiritually engage all of that before uh, he moves more deeply into a public uh, expression of that that has significant consequences for not just his life, but um, his people and his community. Um, and so um, here we see the very first temptation that the tempter puts before him um, and, and, and putting the tempter back into Jesus's Jewish tradition, we would, we might do well to imagine a, a trickster kind of character who is less about trying to overthrow God um, and more about sort of symbolizing the, our own internal inclinations towards um things other than the ways of God um, that lead to collective flourishing. Uh, and so what I love, one of the things I love about this text is the fact that the tempter starts with bread. Uh, liberation is about bread. People are hungry. Uh, and the, the, the teaching that Jesus is going to put forward is going to put people's bread even more at risk than it already is. Jesus is going to be asking people to take risks that leave bread on the line. And the tempter knows that. And what I hear in this situation is the tempter kind of saying like, all right, son of God, you're going to be 
asking people to align uh, with the God that you're that that you are sort of symbolizing that you are teaching about um, and to divest from this other son of God that represents a different system uh, and that's going to be a dangerous move and people are going to be hungry and at risk and what are you going to do about that when it comes down to it because this is serious business uh, what are you going to do command these stones to become loaves of bread how are you going to get meals on the plate of the people that you call into this set of teachings and practices and out of loyalty to the empire legit question it's a legit question um and i hear it in movements that uh unfold today there's always that real moment where Somebody is calling for people to take risks and somebody else is saying, I hear you, but what are you saying we're going to do about food or about safety when we do that? What's, what do you, what's your answer? You know, keeping it real and Jesus uh, draws on the words of Deuteronomy uh, and it's a little misleading, I think, in the translation because it sounds like Jesus is saying we don't even need bread. You know, this this sort of abstract spiritual encounter with God will be enough. And I don't that's not my understanding of the context for Deuteronomy, um, which uh, Jewish scholars talk about as much more a uh, pr proclamation that uh, whatever food prov is provided will be, whatever food is provided by God will be trustworthy. And so despite the fact that in the wilderness there was no bread, like literally bread, which is what the people are used to, there was no bread, but there was manna. And that is no small shift. That is a significant shift to go from bread to this strange foreign substance. Um, but the people decided uh, that that bread, that replacement of bread is trustworthy. Um, and there, and so here Jesus is drawing on the wisdom of his ancestors, grounding in the assurance that they uh, are trusting in a God um, that whatever that God provides, it will be trustworthy. Um, and so it's not a super easy answer to the hard question of where is bread going to come from, uh, but it is rooted in a collective experience um, that he is willing to trust in, not only for himself, but for his people. Um, and then second, I hear uh, the tempter moving on then to uh, what I think is less about um, a performance. It kind of sounds like a, a show yourself, you know, perform, um, perform this trust then that you're talking about um, and 
And uh, Jesus, again, refers to the words of his ancestors, to the, um, the wisdom of his people. Uh, and this text, again, points to Deuteronomy, where uh, the, the teaching reminds the people of when they were in the wilderness and there wasn't enough water and how terrifying and how costly to have to go without water um, in the wilderness. That is significant. Um, and uh, the people, I think, understandably, were struggling to trust that water would ever appear again. Um, and uh, I trust that you know, as much as it can be easy to dismiss the seriousness of um, them in that moment, that any dismissal is a product of having never had gone without access to water um, and in your life or community, and that um, those who have gone without access to water in their lives and communities would know that um, people were dying um, and people were sick. Uh, because of this, and so would have had every understandable right to say, like, is this going to happen or what? <laughs> um, and and even with that uh, real struggle um, at the in their religious teaching, they still choose to trust um, that that God is going to follow through. Um, and, and so Jesus is again drawing on, um, the, the, the collective commitment to even when, uh, there are serious consequences, choosing to trust that this God is more faithful to them and their flourishing even when they don't have signs of that faithfulness, to choose to trust it even over and against this religious empire God. Um, and so Jesus, you know, is reaffirming that trust, that collective trust, and putting his people in the care of that God. Uh, and so last, the, the tempter, um, takes, a, I think, a hard turn and tries a different approach and is like, okay, I hear your heart. <laughs> You're committed. Um, but what if I can offer you all of the stuff that you need to then actually provide a lot of the things you want to provide uh, for yourself and your people? Um, I, I can give you power. I can give you access to resources. Um, it makes me I, you know, I just, I hear all of the, if you just climb the ladder of institutions, you will have more money you can distribute. You will have more power you can distribute. You can pick who sits in seats of power. You can uh, enact the policies you want to enact. Just play by these particular rules um, and you can do the good you want to do through the system. That's what I hear here. Uh, and um, <laughs> I love it. Jesus, I mean, 
drawing on the words of his ancestors. He's not making himself unique in any way. He is saying, these are the words of my people. Uh, I love it. Away with you, Satan. Like, get the hell out of here. I am committed to the God of the people of Israel, and I will only cast my loyalty to that God. Get out of here with your temptations to climb the ladder for the sake of good. Not having it. I love it. So, um, gosh, I just, I, I feel the way that I just moved through all of that quickly. And also I'm talking a lot, uh, but it just feels one, so exciting to me to think about the way that this text invites all of us to uh, do a similar work of um, exploring our uh, spiritual and physical limitations. Uh, what, what leaves us uh, feeling like we are most vulnerable to sacrificing um, our values, uh, our, uh, our people, um, our integrity uh, to the God of liberation, um, to, uh, gosh, I mean, just everything, to the people we claim loyalty and alignment with, um, or when are we most likely to sell out or justify um, our alignment with empire? Um, and we are all children of God. And I think that was a main message of, of Jesus, uh, far more so than his being different than us, was much more a message of likeness with us, which is also uh, the capacity to enflesh God. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I would just invite you to consider this text as a like part of Jesus's readying for his work in the liberation movement of his people um, and his accountability, his accountability to his people, both past ancient and present and to come, um, and his accountability to uh, the impact of his teaching and the community he builds and the practices he encourages um, because they, they have consequences that are real. Um, and that is never a thing to be uh, coy with. So whether we are clergy in positions of religious influence, whether we are uh, people who are uh, collaborating in movement work, whether we are um, therapists, whether we are um, parents, whether we are teachers, all of us are influencing and impacting um, 
communities of people uh, and we all have, yeah, <laughs> we all have an invitation here in Lent to do some some introspection. Uh, I don't think, I just, the last thing I'll say about this, I don't think that this text is about Jesus coming up against his own ego uh, as it's, I feel like often that is the primary interpretation that I encounter as a like, yeah, Jesus and ego. I think this is much more about what it means to be committed to a, a people and a set of values even when pressed up against life death, um, and, and the struggle of living, uh, integrity in the midst of death dealing systems. Um, and yeah, I'm going to just kind of move from a rambly end to, <laughs> uh, uh, the hope that throughout the season, uh, the God that you find companioning you is not the God of empire, um, but is, is the God of um, the liberation of Jewish people. Um, and, and as the scriptures say, and all the nations, um, may it be so. In this week's Call to Action, I invite you to check out the work of Jewish Voice for Peace. As we work to disrupt anti-Semitism in our theologies and politics, we must also wrestle with the way Christianity simultaneously entangles with Palestinian oppression through Christian Zionism. JVP is a great group to learn from about how we can support both our Jewish siblings and our Palestinian siblings as we strive to undo Christian supremacy in the world today. I'll put the link at the bottom of our transcript, but I especially recommend visiting their website, jewishvoiceforpeace.org, and checking out their library of over 70 films you can watch for free. Consider watching one a week throughout Lent. And as always, thank you for joining us. We'd love to hear from y'all, and especially folks of color and non-Christian folks, by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages or filling out the survey on our podcast page at surge.org. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you check out our podcast. You can find out more about Surge at surge.org, where you can sign up for Surge Faith updates and find transcripts for every episode, which include references, resources, and action links. And finally, a shout out to our most excellent sound editor for this episode, Claire Hitchens. We so appreciate all you do to make these episodes happen. Thank you, Claire. May your Lenten journeys be blessed, beloveds. God goes with us as we go with one another. Yeah.